This is Soccer City. Happy Soccer Day, everyone! That's the First Lady of New York City, Sherlane McRae, with a proclamation on Monday, the first ever Soccer Day in the five boroughs. More on this special day in a moment. New York City FC midfielder Yanhel Herrera, deemed out for the season on June 7th, is back and expected to provide a boost for the playoffs. We'll hear from Claudio Reyna, Dolme Tarant, and Sean Johnson on the saluted return of the 20-year-old Venezuelan. City has two regular season matches remaining before the postseason, including Sunday against D.C. United at the new Audi Field. Soccer writer Charles Bohm is here to help tell the story of the arduous journey that led to a soccer-specific stadium in the nation's capital. To celebrate the opening of the next 10 New York City Soccer Initiative mini-soccer pitches, NYCFC, along with their partners, the Mayor's Fund to Advance New York City, the First Lady of New York City, the U.S. Soccer Foundation, Adidas, and Etihad Airways hosted an unprecedented soccer day throughout the city on Monday. An official ribbon-cutting ceremony was held at a pitch site in the Bronx shared by four local schools, Hostess Lincoln Academy of Science, P10X, IS584, University Prep Charter High School. There were players from NYC there, David Villa, Alex Ring, Sean Johnson, South Bronx United, and Downtown United Soccer Club, they were there, uh, plus local students reading submissions from a citywide youth poetry contest, followed by small-sided games on the new mini-pitch. Soccer City was there, and I wanted to share some of the poems that were submitted. Among the entries, Zachary Rodriguez of MS45, an eighth grader. He wrote a song, and while the First Lady did not sing it, she did offer to read this passage. We run under the sun. We kick the ball. Soon we fall. We have laughs. Soon it will pass. We will see a growing seed because we are a team, a soccer team. We'll show how we grow. The whole world will know. We'll show how we belong because we are strong. We'll tell the whole world we are stars because we are a team. That's what we see. We are brave and safe forever together. We will rise during the night. You won't see us coming because we'll keep on running. We are one. We have family fun. This sport brings us here and we'll keep our cheer because we are a team. A soccer team. We will stay and find our way. Let's hear it for Zachary. Well, the University Prep Charter School is up next. Nayeli Rodriguez, Darwin Ordonez, and Alex Hernandez. Put it on there. Yeah. The sun awaits the play. The dove passes like a prey. The Wind blows lightly right through the grass. The time ticks as we all wait for the pass. Sweat drips at the rim of our faces as we hear the beat of our heart races. The hands tremble from the loud voices with the option of one or two choices. Let us show self-control in all we say and do. Keep our play safe and our players too. Heads turn to coach, our last play we know we can approach. We got a great coach to teach us how to play so we can all grow to be great soccer players one day. All that is left to say, thanks for the guy. We will leave the field with great pride. Celebrities were also in the house. Roger Bennett from the Men in Blazers stood at the podium on a damp, rainy day in the Bronx. I'm from Liverpool, and this passes as a beautiful summer's day. 
And when I see that field, New York City feels like the capital of the soccer world. It really does. This is a poem by Sean Choi, and it's untitled. Soccer, a game that brings pride when you score a goal. Everyone can join and have some fun. Smiling faces, even though they're tired of the scorching sun. A game that anyone can play. A small game could become something big. Something small can become a dream. If it doesn't work out, that's okay. You'll be with your friends and have fun anyway. Soccer, a game meant to be played to have some fun. Other winning uh, poems included Living the Dream by Danielle Figueroa, a sixth grader at the Hostess Lincoln Academy of Science, and Mackenzie Duran, Joel Mateo, and David Skolask, sixth and seventh graders at P10X. Also on hand on Monday, uh, the CEO of the U.S. Soccer Foundation, an important figure who helped open up the very first mini-pitch for this New York City soccer initiative in East Harlem. I spent a few minutes with Ed Foster Simeone. We're on our way to 50 in New York City. There's 20 as of today. How about that? That's really exciting. You know, literally we are in the process of transforming the landscape of New York City to match the needs and interests of children who want to play soccer but don't have access to a safe place to play. By building these mini pitches right on school sites, right in neighborhoods, not only do kids get access to after-school programming, but they get the ability to play pickup games whenever they want to right in their neighborhood, and that's the future of the game as far as I'm concerned. The after-school programming, you have a specific program in the foundation which caters to that. You talk about that 3 to 6 p.m. time frame that is sometimes not favorable to children. Uh, You know, the Justice Department will tell you that 3 to 6 p.m. is the most dangerous time for children in this country. It's between the time they get out of school and typically the time that their parents get home. So filling that space with good quality programming, a safe place for children to be, not only gets kids playing soccer, but addresses larger issues as well. A school like this, where we are today, uh, doesn't have that program. Uh, You have one in Newark and one other in the city uh, out of the many across the country. What what does a school have to do to maybe become part of that? Is is that part of the grant program? Yeah, well, we're already in process of working with this school to bring soccer for success to this school. We served over 7,000 children last school year in New York City alone. Uh, 70,000 children last school year across the country. This year that number will increase to 100,000 children nationally. So we're working to reach children, those children at greatest needs, those children who can, whose families cannot afford to participate in traditional soccer programming, making sure that they have access and opportunity to play this game right in their communities as well. When we look at your bio, uh, impressive to me is you're on the board of directors for the ending of obesity. I don't remember the exact right, title right. of it, but obesity is such a, you know, we it's well documented right. in our country that it's that's an issue. So right. this this favors towards that as well. Well, one of the things that we learned very early is that soccer is a natural way for children to develop active, healthy lifestyles. You know. Our game delivers a lot of physical activity, um, you know, particularly when you're playing small-sided kick games. All the children are moving and being active. And then we leverage the influential role that a coach plays in a kid's life, and we empower those coaches with information, how to talk to children about what they're eating, you know, to drink water instead of soda. It's a very small thing. It's not like a lecture or a class, but just in the, incorporated into the practices when kids are playing. Uh, you, you'd be surprised how much influence a well-trained coach mentor can have in a child's life. 
So these after-school programs, coaches are actually trained in how to administer certain things? Yeah, they're, 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 first of all, they're trained how to deliver dynamic soccer activities after school where the kids are all playing, all touching the ball, small-sided games. But then they're trained how to leverage their position as a mentor in these kids' lives. The kids come to them because they want to be there. They want to learn from them. So not only are we getting kids playing, which I think everybody celebrates that, we're leveraging the influential role of a coach mentor to help develop healthy, productive citizens. I know your uh, background as an athlete is in basketball, but you've obviously been well ingrained on the soccer side. And since the failure of the men to uh, qualify for the World Cup, there's been a lot of discussions about development. And these mini pitches lend themselves to football, a lot of touches and things like that. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, in your discussions with, we know you're in underserved communities and trying to help in many ways, but are we also developing maybe the next elite athletes? You know, it's interesting that you say that. One of the things that our philosophy is that if we create access and opportunity for as many children as possible, some of those children will naturally be good. And when you provide a small-sided court like these mini pitches where children are forced to touch the ball lots of times, there's less space, less time, they have to develop skills to be able to participate in play. This is how basketball has emerged in this country, kids playing on the basketball court right in their neighborhood. When you put a mini pitch right in the neighborhood where children play, those children are not only playing when there's a program there, but they're playing on their own because it's right there, right where they live. And that's how you develop the skills and the passion. This is not unique. If you travel around the world, you'll see these mini courts all over the place around the world. It's Latin America, Europe, you know, because it's part of the fabric of life in, in those countries. We at the U.S. Soccer Foundation are pressing to make, to change the landscape, to transform the landscape of soccer in this country by creating these small pitches right in neighborhoods so all children have the access and opportunity to play. It would seem some of your important partners are Major League Soccer clubs. Yep. And I looked at the list of clubs, New York City FC, which will have 50 mini pitches within the next five years in the five boroughs. You recently got together with New York Red Bulls yep. to build pitches in Newark. But there are 10 MLS teams in the United States who are not partners as of yet. Is that something that's really important uh, to the foundation and the growth? In the important phrase there was as of yet. Um, we think that every team, you know, sees value in this kind of work. You know, it's just how do, you know, you have to work your way through each team and get through all the local issues and being able to actually deliver. Um, we're very excited about the relationship with Major League Soccer, which we have a national partnership with Major League Soccer. But then at the local level, Chicago, L.A., you know, my Orlando, we are really um, finding that what what better way to have a community impact than to take the game that you play in the stadium on Saturday and and use it as a vehicle to engage communities in a very practical and meaningful way. We think that's a win all the way around. And I think there has been some work done in Seattle by the foundation, I know. Yes. But then there's Portland, I think of Houston and yes. Dallas. These are MLS teams. They, they need to be involved with this. Well, you know, everybody comes at their own time. And, you know, every community has their own challenges and issues. But we've done a lot of work in Houston. Houston uh, is a very good friend of ours and a good partner of ours. You know, Portland, we've done a, no, a few mini pitches in Portland already. So there's a, there's a, there's a huge opportunity here. And we're just really excited for every team that comes on board that wants to use Soccer for Success, use the Mini Pitch Initiative as a way to transform communities. And I 
told everyone you had a basketball background, but you've done some things on the administrative side of soccer that have been very important, Virginia Youth Soccer yep. and also the Prince William Club in Virginia. So you've seen some of the things that need to happen. Yeah, I've, I was the president of a 3,000-player club in Virginia called Prince William Soccer uh, and also served on the State Association Board of Directors as vice president. So I am very familiar with what it looks like on the ground. But the reality is that in the community where I was the president of a club, it was a middle-class suburban community where, you know, when parents wanted their kids to play, they just wrote a check and, you know, they were able to drive them to the, to the, to the park and, you know, there were minivans lined up to take kids wherever they needed to go. And when you come into underserved communities, that's not the reality, that children don't have as many supports around them. And that's why it's important that we make investments to ensure that all children have access to this game. You know, because just because a kid's family can't afford um, to pay the registration fees or whatever, they, that doesn't mean that they should not have access and opportunity to play. Ed Foster Simeon, the man in charge of the U.S. Soccer Foundation and at the forefront of the mini-pitch movement in our country on Soccer Day. Yanhel Herrera, he grew up playing street soccer in his native Venezuela. Eventually, he was seen and signed by Pep Guardiola at Manchester City. Well, he's on the second year of a two-year loan at New York City FC. On May 25th, Herrera suffered a severe ankle injury at Houston, and on June 7th, the club announced that his second season and likely his NYCFC voyage were over following surgery. Well, maybe it pays to be young. The 20-year-old Herrera recovered ahead of schedule and is available for the final two games of the regular season, and if all goes well, the playoffs. Head coach Dolme Teron has a tentative plan for the Venezuelan international who has never played for his current coach. Maybe 15-20 minutes in the next game because uh, he, needs, uh, he needs rhythm but uh, he's very well right now. It's, it's, it's uh, good news for us because you know how important is this player for, for our team. Every single player is important but especially maybe Rangel because uh, he's able to recover the ball. He played really, really well, and and he needs time. He needs he needs uh, a little bit time, but it's uh, good news for us. Sporting director Claudio Reyna concurs. Reyna, the former U.S. men's national team midfielder, understands the benefits of having a strong two-way player in the middle of the park. He's really strong uh, defensively. Uh, how much ground he covers. He also is, is a really good link. He can get to the box and, and, and score and be part of our attacking uh, game as well. So, you know, he's uh, he was missed this year. There's no doubt about it. He's, I think, uh, you know, fair to say he's a, a first-team starting player that we had plans for this year. Um, so it's it's great for him. He's so excited to be back and playing and on the grass with his teammates. And, you know, we look forward to having him back, and it'll be good to see him out there again. Yeah, statistics will bear out Reyna's claims. In the 26 matches that Herrera has started, New York City averages over two points per game. In the 35 matches that he has been sidelined, City has a precipitous drop, a mean of 1.3 points per match. City goalkeeper Sean Johnson, who along with Alex Ring and Alexander Collins recently signed long-term contracts with the club, explains what he believes are the benefits of having a player like Herrera in front of his back line. He's fearless, man. Um, there's, there's never a moment where you uh, you would say it's too big for Yangel. He, he plays the same every single game. Um, he's tough. He breaks up plays. He's 
really composed on the ball, gives us a really uh, solid presence in the midfield. And I think um, with Yangel, with Ringy, Maxi, guys like that in the middle of the pitch that have you know, proven themselves game in and game out. Um, there's, there's not a, a better midfield when we're, we're healthy, um, I think, in, in the league. Yeah, that's the midfield of Herrera, Ring, and Maxi Morales, a guy who's contributed career highs of eight goals and 15 assists. In two years, though, that midfield trio has started only 16 matches together. The result, nine wins and just two defeats. How much and how often Herrera can supply his side the rest of the way? Well, that'll be determined over the last two regular season matches, this Sunday at D.C. United, and then Decision Day at MLS, Sunday, October the 28th, when City will host the Philadelphia Union at Yankee Stadium. The single elimination playoff game will be either October the 31st or November the 1st. So these final two weeks of the season will determine the playoff seating for Toronto's squad. The Catalan thrust into this role as manager on June the 24th after the departure of Patrick Vieira. And despite some uneven results, Reyna says he's happy with Guardiola's former assistant. No, it's been really good. I think uh, underestimated how difficult it is to, to transition into, first of all, a new country and life, and, and then take over a team in the middle of the season and uh, I've been very happy with it uh, because you know you're, you're coming to a new everything after being uh, 11 years also in a different role as a coach so it's been a really good transition also his staff getting integrated with with, with life in MLS um, it's been it's been it's been a challenge but they're certainly been doing a really good job we're just at the point where we just need a couple of goals to kind of uh, you know, really get us going again. When Dome first came, we were scoring goals regularly. And I think now having everybody back fully fit, um, you know, with the last two games left is exciting. And, and uh, he's looking forward to the playoffs. As is Alex Ring, who announced his retirement from international competition with Finland and then signed a multi-year agreement to stay with New York City. While it is certain that Ring will be back, the face of the franchise, David Villa, is in the final year of his contract at 36 years old. This could be his last chance to win an MLS Cup, which Ring said doesn't change the impetus at all. I want to win it every year. I don't care this year, last year, next year. In five years, I want to win it every year. That's why if I don't have that hunger, then I'll quit soccer because it doesn't make sense for me otherwise. If this is Villa's final season, that's the guy you want with the captain's armband. Ring and his mates, they'll be making their first and only trip to Eastern Conference foe DC United on Sunday. And for the first time, they'll play in the new Audi Stadium, open just this summer. It's been a good home for the four-time MLS Cup champions. Their record 10-2-1 in all but one of those matches played since mid-July. The soccer-specific stadium has a story that's been long-running. MLSsoccer.com's Charles Bohm, who lives in D.C., helps tell the tale. This Audi field thing, you know, I, I have to admit I didn't follow it that closely. I mean, every now and then I read, well, and from my end it was like, well, when is this thing getting built? Because I, I went back and I saw uh, Don Garber, commissioner of MLS, in 2004 was quoted uh, pretty much like this. A soccer-specific stadium needs to be, become a priority for D.C. United. So that's 2004. July 9th, 2018, Audi Field opens. D.C. United defeats Vancouver 3-1. to That's a long period of time between the proclamation from the president of MLS to the actual building being constructed. So is this a saga or what? 
it's true, and, and I think uh, fans up in your neck of the woods, uh, especially old-timers, may remember the agonizing wait for Red Bull Arena, right, when first the Metro started. And then the Red Bulls uh, were, were uh, wheeling and dealing and haggling and backdoor brokering with uh, with New Jersey and all its myriad murky uh, political and, and uh, stadium entities to get what we now know today as Red Bull Arena built. So, and uh, we said goodbye to RFK last October, almost exactly a year ago. And, uh, and everything is still getting uh, – the, the new stadium smell has not yet left uh, Audi Field. But it has been an incredible saga. We still – those of us who have been around a while still pinch ourselves uh, that the place even exists. Well, Buzzard Point, its location now, where it eventually got constructed, it seems to me there was an agreement in place by 2013, yet five years later is the time when the stadium actually opened. Construction didn't begin until uh, February of 2017. Ooh, there have been so many twists and turns and, and false dawns and, and uh, cul-de-sacs. So, yeah, um, we if we go back to, you, know, you mentioned 04, um, United was one of the uh, one of many Phil Anschutz operated teams uh, back at the in the early 20th century, and uh, Kevin Payne was the longtime executive and club president who was um, kind of the, the the leading figure in the front office and the one um, spearheading the stadium charge back then. They thought they had a deal at a place called um, uh, Poplar Point, which is actually just a, a stone throw, or I guess more like a short boat ride across the Anacostia River from where um, Audi Field is today. Over on the, the um, eastern shore of the Anacostia, there's a site that was, uh, I believe it's federal land um, administered by National Parks land. That was uh, kind of a little peninsula of land that was just um, near this bridge that was there was some development coming. Um, and they thought they had a swap figured out. The stadium was going to be the anchor of a, a huge multi use project with residential and park space and, and retail uh, under Adrian Fenty. He, he famously, in the, in the memories of DC United fans, came to, a, I think it was a playoff game, one of the last regular season games while he was campaigning for mayor, held up United Scarf, said, I'm going to do everything in my power to get uh, a stadium for DC United at, at Poplar Point, and then won his election, and a few months later, um, consciously cut out the stadium from his preferred list of, uh, of development partners for that facility or that spot of land. Actually, today, it's, it's probably worked out best for United because nothing ever happened with that project. It still remains like sort of semi-abandoned uh, and national parks land with a helicopter pad on it. Nothing's been done. It got, the whole project got bogged down. Um, so then DC United moved out to the Burbs. They, they tried to leverage some competition from different municipalities, including Baltimore, uh, which is almost an hour up the road, and then much, much closer is Prince George's County, uh, Maryland. They thought they had a deal with a, a, a county executive. They did a, a, a you know a, a big press event out in Prince George's County. It's just outside the Beltway, so we're, uh, fans may kind of know where FedEx Field is. It was ballpark that area where they thought they had a stadium deal in place. Did the jersey pose and and all those things you do with a guy named Jack Johnson, who turned out to be an enormously corrupt um, uh, politician who was found with uh, stacks of cash in his freezer and all that sort of thing. And, um, so, so that's that project uh, ran aground, and then there was there was they were pretty close to a deal with Baltimore uh, to move the, the the club up the road entirely. I mean, it's really in some ways it's the same market, but really in soccer terms, it's a very different market. It's yeah, more different even than than North Jersey uh, and five boroughs. You know, in, in comparing NYC and, and the Red Bulls. Charles Bomar, guest. Charles, I, I I didn't realize if you're trying to launder or hide money that you put it in your freezer. Is, yeah, and, you know, I, I have to admit my, my memory of this is anecdotal, and somebody may uh, may well want to call in and correct me, but Jack Johnson was one of these kind of flamboyantly corrupt guys, as it, as it turned out. If, if I remember right, there may have also been a, 
I want to say he, his wife was found with with cash uh, stashed in her underwear and sort of trying to trying to move money around as they knew that the uh, that the authorities were cu- were bearing down on them. So it was uh, comical in retrospect, although a sad sign of uh, of how how uh, murky politics can get in these and other parts of America. So, um, and that would have been again, you know, you have to say it it it, it put the club sort of existence in this market in jeopardy to have deals deal after deal fall through um but i think in the end the market was just too good there was too much history here it was too big a market for for mls to to even entertain sort of pulling out of they they kind of i think were edging towards the territory that they entered with with the the, the columbus crew saga of maybe we need to threaten to move and that sort of thing but in the end what 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 got the the politicians on their side was was committing to the district and then when you do that uh, I think even people on the outside don't have any idea of how complex, how many things, you, how many hurdles you have to get over when you're working in a high-density urban area with a project that has a lot of different stakeholders, a lot of people and, and entities that can influence it. Um, and so it turns out it's, 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 it's a great spot. It's the best uh, of the sites that they could have asked for. I did want to ask you about the supporters. And, you know, I think anyone listening that's a New York City FC supporter or part of the club with the the stadium chatter, you know, reaching a a bit of a crescendo and, you know, supporters wondering, you know, when they'll get some information about a soccer specific stadium for New York City FC. But there there was an issue at the outset with the supporters groups. And can, can you explain exactly what that was and then how it was resolved? Well, yeah, there's uh, one of my colleagues here in, in uh, the D.C. market uh, who writes for Black and Red United uh, under Chess Rockwell, my friend Jason Anderson. Uh, I think he's the one who coined the, the term um, calling the RFK their former home, uh, the CBGB of, uh, of American soccer, right? So RFK being this big uh, old-school NFL-sized stadium where supporters groups had a lot of leeway. They got the prime seats at midfield. Uh, on what was known as the loud side where the stands got bouncing. And um, they were very, you know, they had a very close relationship with the front office. Um, the people that were in charge as Audi Field was uh, under construction and opening a, a, of the business decisions at DC United, I think maybe lost sight a little bit uh, of the importance of, of supporters groups, um, which are sometimes hard to measure in strictly financial profit loss statements and, you know, the, the book balancing that, that every professional um, organization has to do. Uh, you know, they were looking at, I'm sure they were trying to maximize the income from a, a brand new, beautiful downtown stadium. Um, and they eventually basically made a few uh, oversteps. Basically, a falling out between um, the club and two of its three major supporters groups. Uh, and they were not part of the, um, you know, the game day experience at the opener at, at Audi Field, which is against Vancouver back in July. Subsequently, fences were mended. There was some, um, uh, some outreach that, that went in all directions, and everybody figured out how to move forward together with all three of the major supporters groups uh, in that supporter section. And they are, they really are, they, it was always great at RFK. And it's like, it seems to me like the supporters culture is making a conscious effort to, to raise the bar uh, at Audi Field. They're out in, a, in an uncovered section of the stadium. They're behind one goal um, and they are out there rain or shine. They're extremely loud. They're getting there before the whistle and setting the tone for, for pretty much every game at least that I've been to. Um, and it's a blast to just both to watch them from a distance and to sit in that section or near that section. So it's really it's one of those sort of intangibles that um, smart clubs make sure they harness to their benefit. Um, but it's a very can be very complex sort of communications and, and interpersonal relations and you know, organizational relationships to get to that point. And we've seen a lot of clubs around MLS have had difficulties with this. I don't know the latest with NYCFC, but hopefully they uh, you know they keep the right balance there because. 
you know, they're, they're typically the, the fans that maybe pay less per visit to your stadium, or maybe your margins on those supporters aren't uh, as good as they are a casual fan, but they bring so much to the table that's so important to everything about the game day experience. Lessons to be learned from Charles Bohm. Uh, Charles said Audi Field could become a Portland-like atmosphere, and it's in the heart of the city. It could become an iconic downtown soccer venue that you don't experience much in MLS. Next week on Soccer City, I'll share my chat with NYCFC Central Defender Sebastian Ibiaga, who has emerged as an important figure at the back and recently shaved his head in search of a new look. I had braids at one point. I had a huge mohawk. It was almost like white, and then I cut it all. Yeah, yeah. So like, I just always do crazy stuff with my hair. I think that's the way I express myself, and I just kind of just love to do crazy things. I vote for the return to the Mohawk, which we haven't seen with NYCFC. Imagine this powerful six-foot-two guy closing you down with a wild white Mohawk. Just a thought. That'll do it for Soccer City. Our first game in three weeks coming up, airtime 245 on Sunday from Audi Field on WNYE and worldwide on the TuneIn app. I'm Glenn Crooks. Till then, have a great week of soccer.